0: Thank you, Nathan. Uh, let me open us in a word of prayer as we begin our time of teaching. Father, please help us to comprehend all that we can about your beauty and your glory. Help us to listen carefully, to engage our minds and our hearts so that we would be open vessels, ready to receive the word that you have for us. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us and pray that we would be good stewards of that revelation. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, we just began our first round of equip classes, and uh, one of the classes, you may have noticed, was postponed. I was planning on teaching a class called On Being Baptist. And my idea for the class was to take our church's statement of faith, which is the, uh, the statement of faith that's used by many Southern Baptist churches called the Baptist Faith and Message. It, it says what we believe about God, what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about the Holy Spirit, what we believe about marriage and sexuality, what we believe about the church, and on and on and on. It's, it's, a, it's a doctrinal statement. And so basically, uh, and we were going to talk about specifically what is distinctive about Baptist belief? And I was talking about this with one person, and um, and she said, "This." She, I said, "Well, it's basically a theology class." And she said, "Ugh, that sounds boring." And I was like, "Excuse me, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, really? You think you think theology is boring?" the study of God, the thing that's I think it's boring, right? And now, at the same time, I'm also really quite sympathetic, because once I backed off my prideful response, I was like, oh yeah, I, I, I understand, I know what it's like, I, I used to think that theology was boring too, and that all changed when I got my hands on a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. If you've never read that book, you've got to read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I never heard anybody talk about God like this. I'd never seen God with such clarity that it made me tremble. It really did. We are going to begin a new series tonight on the attributes of God. This is known often uh, in, in, by theologians as theology proper. Proper in the sense that we're not studying the doctrine of the church or the doctrine of last things. We're studying the doctrine of God. right? We're studying God himself. And I think it's a really appropriate thing to think about after we've finished our emphasis on worship. right? You remember we've talked a lot about worship and one of the main things that we've come away with... Mark kept talking about how doxology, or that theology should lead to doxology. Okay, those are big words. That when we see and know and believe something about God, that should make us want to worship or sing, right? That's what doxology means, glory, glorify, right? And theology is a really helpful way to do this. It is really the only way to have, if you're going to pray something about God... That is theology. It might be right, it might be wrong, but theology, it it, it helps us with that. Theology is like a window. It's like a window through which we can look, and when we do, we can see the glory of God. And if what you see about God excites you, if what you see about God thrills you, then your response will be worship. If what you see about God bores you, then your response will be apathy. If what you see about God scares you, it might cause you to run or to reconsider your life or flee to Jesus. There's all sorts of ways that we can respond. A.W. Tozer, another man who introduced me to big ideas about God, has made this statement and many people have said it, that what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Which means that our theology, the things that we believe and think about God, right? So if you were to make a statement, if I was was to ask you, what is God like? Your answer would be theology, right? It would be a theological statement, and what we think, what we feel, how we respond, that is, uh, in, in terms of God, is at the very core and the very center of our identity. And I believe that that is true. Tonight, we are going to take up this idea of incomprehensibility. Roman, can you say that with me? Incomprehensibility. I had to practice it today, right? I had to learn how to spell it today. All right, and we, we can look at that word and think, all right, what in the world does that mean? We know what, we see the word comprehend in there, right? And so you would think, okay, well, that means we can know, right? We can understand, we can understand deeply, yet we're told that it's incomprehensible. Well, that, how does that work? I've got two things to tap. I'm tapping the wrong thing. Here's the simple way to say it. Human beings cannot fully comprehend the essence of God. That word fully would be helpful to have there, but this statement is true. We cannot comprehend the essence of God. You cannot, as a human, as a finite human, fully understand who God is. Let's think about this in terms of the experience of Moses. Would you turn in your Bibles to Exodus 33? Exodus 33. Now, if there is anybody who is going to be a good candidate to get to see God, to get to understand God, to get to comprehend God, Moses would be on the top of that list, right? I mean, he, he had a remarkable life, and he would have been the best candidate. Just think about Moses. Moses was God's carefully chosen mediator to be between God and the people, right? God worked this incredible act of redemption, and he did it through Moses. And Moses dialogued with God. Moses had God's attention. Just remember some of the key events of Moses' life. After the exodus, where God worked through Moses, God brought Israel out into the wilderness. And there he, uh, they took up camp at Sinai. And God was preparing to give Israel the law. Right, He was going to reveal himself, what he believed about, or what, what God wanted for their lives. He was going to reveal that to Israel. But what did Israel do? Instead of obeying God, they chose Idolatry, Right? And that brought with it the wrath of God. So, and you can look back in chapter 32, verse 30. When that happened, Moses tried to intercede. Right? He sought to make atonement for the people. But God said, no. No longer. He said, I will not go with this people. I will not go with them any further. I will send them on their way, but I will not go with you because of their sin. In verse 3 of chapter 33, God says, I can't do it. I would consume them. I would consume them. When the people hear this, they mourn. So Moses goes to God again in verse 13, and he pleased with God. He, the text says that he spoke with God face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Isn't that interesting language? We know that he did this in the Tent of Meeting, right? Do you remember the Tent of Meeting, an early form of the tabernacle where, where God would come and his, he would manifest his presence in what? Do you remember? A cloud, right? right? We often see God cloaking himself with a cloud, right? He would lead them with a cloud. A cloud is a, is a, is a divine image, right? Especially in that it covers and, and Moses intercedes yet again, and this time, in verse 17, incredibly God agrees. Look at, look at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, The very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Because that is intimate language. God is telling Moses, You have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. That, that language is, that knowledge language is intimate as, as between two friends. I know you by name. Moses had the most intimate relationship with the Lord. I mean, who, who would have a closer relationship with him, right? He, he, he talked with him. Yet here's the thing. Not even Moses was able to experience the very essence of God. If you look down at verse 18, we read this famous phrase. Moses said, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. It's an incredible thing to ask. Surely Moses didn't really understand what he was asking God had spoken out of the cloud to Moses and he called to him out of the cloud. And then we can see his response in 33 verse 20. What does he say? You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Now we know that God goes on to allow Moses to see something. But here we first, here in verse 20, it's really critical that we see this. You cannot see my face, for no man shall see my face and live. But didn't we just read that Moses spoke to God face to face? Well, what's going on here? No man can see my face and live. And so here we come to our very first introduction to the incomprehensibility of God. God tells Moses, it is not possible for a man to see the face of God and live. Now, you might be like me. Most of my life, when I've read this and thought about this text, I think in terms of the physical danger, right? There must be something about the glory of God that is physically dangerous, right? Isn't that what you think? That, that, his, that his presence is dangerous for me? And I think that is true, but I think that there is more than that. You see, while in this case, incomprehensibility would seem to be more about knowing, right? When you think about comprehending, don't you think about knowing? Perhaps more than seeing. But I would argue that it wasn't simply that Moses could not see God and live. That's not the only problem here. I would argue that Moses could not know the essence of God and live. Do you see the difference? This is not just a physical problem. This is a knowing problem. It's a physical and a knowing problem. He could not know God's very essence and live. But you know the story. God actually agrees to this. Let's read it uh, 19 through 23 since I've skipped around. He says, uh, verse 18, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see it and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now this is incredible, isn't it? God says, no man can see my glory and live. And then he says, I will let you see some of my glory, but there's some limitations, aren't there, right? First, God's going to hide him. God has to protect Moses from God. That's interesting. He's got to hide him, and then he's going to permit him to see his back, but he cannot see his face. Now, wait a minute. God doesn't have a body, does he? I know you can't see that. It's part of the illustration. God is spirit, Right? The Bible teaches us that God is spirit. Look at this one text on the screen. The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. Right? God does not have a form, He has a voice. Or in John chapter 4, verse 24 God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, right? God is a spirit. Jesus took on a body, but God the Father is spirit. So what is going on here in Exodus 33 when God tells Moses, you can't see my face, but you can see my back. What in the world is going on? Well, this is what we call anthropomorphic language, right? It is human language. You like fancy words? If you like fancy words, it's a good night for you. My son didn't like it. He left. Um, I don't blame him. Uh, it's uh, Anthropomorphic language is it's, it's how God condescends to use human language, right? He takes on human language to help explain himself to us. So when it says that God stretches out his hand to save... It doesn't mean God has a hand that he's stretching out to save. It means God has powerful salvation skills, right? He's using human language to help us understand. But that brings up another question. Why in this text would God distinguish between his back and his face? Right? If if God is taking on human language, if he doesn't have a body, if he exists in spirit, why would he distinguish between the back and the face? What, What do they represent well I think the answer has to do with what is going on when God describes how he would pass by did y'all catch that look back down uh, at verse 19 he says I will make all of my what pass by my goodness I will make my goodness pass by and then I'll declare my name to you, the Lord, right? So when, when God passes by, what does He say is going to be passing by? His character. Is His goodness, certainly, but His character. Now think about that. We see, we see His goodness in verse 19, the, the quality of His lordship in, was that 19 or is it 20, right? And then He goes on to say that He describes Himself as the Lord of mercy. He is sovereign over His mercy. He's describing His character. So God, uh, try to track with me, God is taking his character attributes, his qualities, his character, and there is a physical manifestation of them. And they're radiant. They're dangerous. They're so glorious that they're dangerous for humans. So what is God doing when he says, you can see my back, but you can't see my face? Well, I think the point here is that God is saying, Moses, I will let you see a limited portion of my glory. I will let you see me, but not me fully. You can comprehend me some, but not completely. You can, you can know something about me, but you cannot fully understand my essence. He can see God, but not fully. He can know God, but not fully. Why? Because no man can see God and live. Are you you tracking with me on this? When God says that no one can see him, I think it is safe to assume that this also means not simply that no one can just see his physical glory, but it also means that no one can fully know God. No one can plumb the depths of his character. I mean, isn't knowing more intimate than seeing anyway? Or like... It's one thing for me to say I see my wife. It's another thing to say that I know my wife, right? I think the lesson here is the glory of God is so great, it's deadly. It's beyond us. I want you to think about it like this. Think of it as like the sun. Humans have landed on the moon. What? It's probably dark. (laughs) we've landed on the moon okay so we've landed on the moon but why haven't we landed on the sun those nasa folks bunch of cowards underachievers right why haven't we landed on the sun okay the glory of the sun is too great right what were to happen if a man was to walk on the sun I mean, I mean, <laughs> they would not get anywhere close, right? We, we all understand that. Just, just think about this. I Googled it, so I learned things. The sun is 93 million miles away, okay? 93 million miles away. It takes light eight minutes to get here. Okay, so light comes out of the sun. It takes a full eight minutes before it actually gets to us. The surface of the sun is 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Have you ever been outside on a day that's above 100? You feel like you're going to die, right? You ever open the oven, it's 350 degrees, and you feel that heat hit your face, right? The sun is 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The core of the sun, some... Scientist claims to say that. How do they get these numbers, right? Siri, what's the, yeah, yeah? The scientist has Siri. Okay, so so the the surface of the sun is ten thousand degrees Fahrenheit. The core of the sun, they suppose, is twenty seven million degrees Fahrenheit. Now, what the difference in 27 million and 10,000 is, I don't know, right? A lot. But just just, just think about that. If you look at the sun for more than a few seconds, you will have permanent eye damage. If you look at it for two minutes, you will go blind. It could even be a few seconds. Do you remember when we had the eclipse and everyone had to, to buy those glasses to make sure they look at it? Even looking at a teeny portion of the sun for a few minutes can do Damage But here's the thing: We can't get anywhere near the sun, but can we know things about the sun? Yes. We can know some things about the sun, right? We can experience it, but we have to experience it from a great distance and in very small doses. And the best way to know about the sun is to think about it in terms of its effect, right? So we, um, we understand that the sun helps makes plants grow. We understand that the sun uh, causes shadows, that it produces heat, that it burns my skin in 15 minutes in April, right? That we can get sunburns. What Moses experienced was like an eclipse. God let him see some of his glory. And it's still dangerous, but he was able to see some of the glory of God. Now, again, I just want to remind you that we're not simply talking about the physical presence because God is spirit, but all of his beauty and his glory. I think the lesson for us is that God is so great and so glorious that man cannot survive either the manifestation, right, the revealing of his glory, or even understand the full revelation of it because God is incomprehensible he is beyond us we cannot fully understand the essence of God this might help us understand why the Israelites built idols do you do you remember is that not the strangest story Moses is up on the mountain there's a cloud there's thunder they know if they go too close to the mountain they die and what do they do they throw gold into a fire, and they shape calves, and they say, Here, O Israel, are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. I read that, I'm like, what in the world happened? Like, what happened in those few days? Well, I think part of it, I think the reason that humans have this insane attraction to idols, even if we have seen a glorious redemption, is that we don't like a God that we can't control. they just seen... They just seen the salvation out of egypt And yet they wanted domesticated gods We don't like incomprehensibility it is very bad for the ego right what it means is you're not smart enough Right, that's a big part of this. You do not have the resources Has you ever had the have you ever had the experience where your computer slows down? right you need more resources more ram perhaps faster processor you don't have the resources you don't have the resources to understand the glory of god we don't like incomprehensibility we like comprehensibility we prefer control and understanding and so this is why israel made idols with their own hands they're far less intimidating and they're very easy to move right pick them up move them You're tired of them put them in the closet close the door You ever felt like that with the Lord? I wish I didn't have to deal with this right now, right, in our sin. The Bible has wonderful passages about how God mocks our attraction to idols. In Isaiah 46, he talks about how you're idols and you've been made with human hands, but hey, you got a mouth, can't talk. Got hands, can't touch. You got feet, but you can't. Move. You can't see or hear or speak. And that's why he says, to whom will you liken me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy Lord. Isaiah 46 says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? No idol is like God. Do you remember Dagon? Remember when we did that a couple years ago? so it's so much fun to read about how uh the ark of the covenant came before the philistines god and what happened the next day he woke up tipped over it's a problem with idols they tip over so they set him back up went to bed what happened the next day tipped over again whoops lost his head right it's the problem with idols and god i mean clearly god is mocking dagon see our god is totally different than an idol he is not tameable, he is not domesticated, and he is not easily understood by the human mind. He is beyond this. And finite humility, humanity, is rightly quite nervous and insecure in his presence. So when we're, when we're talking about this incomprehensibility, really what we're talking about is the infinity of God this quality of his greatness, it does not have an end or a limit. There's so many texts that we could look at here. Think about how often the word unsearchable is in the Bible. This is one of them. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is, let's all say it together, unsearchable. Think about that word for a minute. What does it mean that God's greatness and we read about other places. His goodness is unsearchable. His understanding is unsearchable, right? What does it mean that his greatness is unsearchable? It means you cannot get to the end. If we were to, uh, if we were to send out explorers to find the end of God's goodness, we could not get there, right? If we were to spend all of eternity and all of humanity was to devote all of our attention to understanding fully the essence of God, we would fail in that enterprise. We cannot get to the end of God's greatness. And if we cannot get to the end of his greatness, we cannot know his essence fully. That word unsearchable means there is no searching, counting, or full examination that can be done. Right? Isn't that a incredible thing to think about? Now, this is hard to grasp. I know theology stretches us. That's why it makes us uncomfortable. But it's important to try to think about this. and so We have to take note of it because this means that no one has ever or will ever know the depths of God's essence or the breadth of His might or the true weight of His glory. If I had time, I'd go all the way through Isaiah 40. God says, Who's held the oceans in his hand, right? Or weighed out the the mountains in a balance, put the hills on the... Who's called out all the sorry hosts, right? Who will you compare me? Who can you compare God? God is infinite, and his ways are infinitely beyond ours. That's why we read, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than my thoughts. How high do you think? Right? If the surface of the sun is 10,000 degrees, the core of the sun is whatever crazy number I said, 27 million, whatever. 27 million. What is the difference in your thought and God's thought? If it was a temperature, what would it be? How hot are you, right? Compared to God? 10,000 versus 27 million. That's not enough. It's higher. God is further. He is smarter. He is wiser. He is more beautiful. What a glorious thought. Have you, have you, you might be sitting here thinking, what is at stake in a conversation like this? Like, why? what is the big deal about God being incomprehensible? What, what, is, what is so important? Maybe one way to think about it would be, what would be lost if God wasn't like this? That's one way to ask it. Well, there's a lot of answers to that question. I'm just going to highlight one. Let's put it like this. If God was not incomprehensible he would be limited. Okay? If God was not incomprehensible, he would not be infinite. He would be finite and therefore very limited. In other words, this would ruin all the omnis. You know the omnis? Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, right? It would ruin all those. God couldn't have any of those. He would have limits. There would be things he couldn't do, there would be uh, things he could not know, places he couldn't be, places he couldn't go, things he couldn't fix, contingencies he couldn't account for, right? There could even be someone stronger than him. Well, if that's the case, he's not God. In fact, if that was true, he couldn't even guarantee guarantee that he would love you. Because he wouldn't know the future. His love might run out. If God was not infinite, God would cease to be God. If he were describable, if there were the right words, he would be less glorious because he would fit into the limits of human language created by men who despise God. This is where some of the church's greatest thinkers rush in to defend this precious doctrine. Thomas Aquinas, he said so many incredible things about this. He put it like this. You can either read it or listen. You've got to think carefully, right? The infinite cannot be contained in the finite. God exists, and nothing finite can grasp him infinitely. It's been repeated many times. The infinite cannot be contained in the finite. God's infinite. You're not. Don't be surprised you don't understand. You don't understand that diagnosis? God is infinite you're finite. You can't understand his ways. He's beyond us. He goes on to say, it is impossible for a created mind to understand God infinitely. It is impossible, therefore, to comprehend God. Now, before we get to some application, I want to reference just two dangers that I think come up in a doctrine like this. One danger is the danger, do I have a slide? Oh, one danger is the danger of agnosticism. Well, I can't know, so what's the point, right? We think that since I can't know everything with certainty, that means I can't know anything with certainty. And if I can't know anything, then I can't know anything. It's all a mystery. What's the point? Some of the world's major thinkers have thought like this. But the Bible doesn't allow this. Because the Bible declares truth about God, doesn't it? God is incomprehensible, but that does not mean he is unknowable. Did you catch that? He is incomprehensible, but that does not mean that he is unknowable. He is not fully knowable, but he is knowable. Is anyone's head hurting? Right? It's because God is big. He's big. I think the other danger that is far more applicable to us is what I'll just I'll call religious apathy. It's not the mistake of atheists, it's not the mistake of agnostics, it's the mistake of church folk religious people For whatever reason whether it's that god seems too complicated or the words are too big Or it is boring or that we're just lazy or whatever it is Some people I think prefer to think I know god. In other words, I experience him But I don't really know about him That is they prioritize their experience of religion and their experience of god y'all we live in the south you hear this all the time when you talk to folks. They talk about their relationship with God. They don't know anything about him according to the scriptures. They don't know it's true. And they, they interact with him in a way that is not the God of the Bible. Prioritizing experience over truth. And I think this danger is prevalent here, perhaps even in church. We settle for knowing some basic facts about God, right? God is creator. God is uh, Lord. God is love. God is Savior. But we've never really been overwhelmed by them. And if you've never stopped long enough to think about this and to be overwhelmed by these qualities, if you've never stopped to ask, to wonder, to consider, to explore, how rich can your relationship with the Lord really be? It's like me knowing that my dad is a pilot or me having a relationship with him. I know he's a pilot, sure, but I have a relationship with him. He's my father. We have memories. We have fun. We talk today. I heard what's going on in his life. He cares about my life. I understand him. So many Christians just know that he's a pilot and that's it. And they wonder why they're bored in worship. They wonder why they're bored by the Bible. Because the basic fact that God is love will not thrill your heart forever and ever and ever unless you know it deeply. There's so little vibrance. There might be a skeleton of truth, but there is very little intimacy. If you don't push in to, if you don't push in to know him, And if you're content with so little knowledge, you will end up with an uncomplicated, unmysterious, unglorious, unthrilling God. But hey, you never miss a Sunday. Does this sound like any religion that you see? Any religion that you've had? We need to dwell and bask in the fact that we have a God who is incomprehensible. So, So what do we do about application? Let, I, I got a couple here. One is we need to stand in awe. If I feel silly even trying to use my words to describe these things. I mean, who, who is sufficient for a task like this? <laughs> oh my goodness, my temperature is the same as yours, right? John Calvin used to, every time he would write, he, wrote, he was a prolific writer, and he'd write about God and he would hit his knees and pray and tremble. Oh, I hope I said it right. All good theology must lead to doxology. We need to stand in awe that we cannot comprehend. The knowledge of God, even the knowledge that he is incomprehensible, is meant to lead you to worship, to think bigger thoughts about God, to sing more loudly, to serve more sacrificially. We need to learn to admire God. And theology helps us do that. Here's a fancy quote, Thomas Watson. He said, Learn to admire what you cannot fathom. Isn't that great? Learn to admire where you cannot fathom, for we can, do no, we can no more search out his infinite perfections than a man upon the top of the highest mountain can take a star in his hand. Isn't that great? It's like, oh, I've almost got that star. No, you don't. But you can still glory. You still have awe that the stars are there theology is absolutely essential for worship if your theology is weak and flimsy your worship is weak and flimsy because the way you see God is weak and flimsy and God is not weak and flimsy don't you see our praise can often be meaningless I almost requested that we sing immortal invisible God only wise it was in light, inaccessible, hidden from our, I don't remember all the words, um, most glorious, most blessed, uh, I'll I'll stop, we would have the words, that's why we're not singing it tonight. Um, Theology is essential for worship. John Calvin said, we only praise God aright when we are filled and overwhelmed with an ecstatic admiration of the immensity of his power. That's a lot of words, but you get the point, don't you? You can only admire him if you get a sense of the weight of his glory. Oh, I wish we felt that on Sunday morning. Stand in awe. We should also say, trust the Bible. The only reason that we know anything about our incomprehensible God is because God has chosen to reveal himself to us. You can't know everything, but oh my goodness, you can know a lot. And how sad is it to think we are bored by this book? How sad is it to think that there are parts of it you might not have even read, right? God has revealed himself to us. He did this in the incarnation. He came among us in the person of Jesus Christ. God's Word and the works that they contain allow us to know and to comprehend Him. Not exhaustively, but truly. And that's important. So commit yourself to knowing and hearing and receiving God's Word. Receive it with humility. Another application is get low. I'm not talking about the limbo. I'm talking about humility. We need to be a humble people. True theology should always create in us a sense of Humility. I don't know very much about space. Um, I would probably not be able to list off the planet, the planets in our solar system. I'd probably have to Google it, right? Karis can probably do it. I probably can't. But I know that I don't know that much about space. But an astronaut or a NASA scientist, they really know they don't know much about space. Why? Because they've been studying it. Who knows that they don't know much? the people that know the most right if you talk to a man who really knows God he will say I don't know I don't understand there's so much I don't know friends that is so true for us when we're speaking about God this is a another quote I think this is Aquinas when we're speaking about God is it any wonder that you do not comprehend because if you do comprehend it's not God you comprehend It is better to have a pious confession of ignorance rather than a rash profession of knowledge. To attain some great knowledge of God is a great blessing, but to comprehend Him is totally impossible. Don't pretend. Don't pretend and don't presume. Which leads us to the last point. Oh, there's the quote. It's Calvin. Be like Job. Be like Job. We need to repent of our foolish complaints and our questions and our presumptions. When we question God with an attitude of disrespect, we are presuming that we are smarter than him. And that is ridiculous. I hope that this shows you that even more. We need to sit down and shut up. Do you remember Job's response halfway through that great dialogue from God? What's it? uh, Verse, uh, chapter 40, I think it starts in 38 or 39. God starts explaining. He starts explaining the depth of his incomprehensibility. And then halfway through, Job says, that's enough. I've had enough. I've had enough. He says, behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer again. And I will proceed no further. What does God do? He kept talking. Friends, we need to be like Job. We need to stand before the Lord, trusting him, trembling, not questioning, but recognizing his ways are infinitely above my ways, and I can trust him. Friends, I hope that tonight that your heart swells at even the prospect, even if you don't understand at all, that God is bigger and better and more glorious than you can imagine. But he's revealed himself to us, and for that we can be thankful. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is God among us, Emmanuel, and that he showed us what you were like and that he is taking us to be with you. Thrill our hearts with this prospect tonight, we pray in your name. Amen. You just church. Go in peace.